you can find your way in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. Pastor Dale read from Leviticus 23.5 and um, a couple weeks ago as I was preparing for uh, teaching on the Passover, I thought, man, it would be perfect if this was Communion Sunday, but it wasn't. And so I thought, but then, you know what, maybe it would be good to spend some time in one of the Gospels and think about how the Passover connects to the Lord's Supper. And so this is what we're going to do this morning. So uh, Luke chapter 22, I'll begin reading in verse 7. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, after you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. And you shall say to the owner of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished room. Prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostle with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it until... It is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, He also took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This is God's holy, ancient word. Let's pray. Lord God, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but your word stands forever. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us, instruct us from your holy, eternal, unchanging word that is indeed able to make the simple wise, able to enlighten the eyes, able to rejoice the heart, able to convert the soul. Work through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we began to talk about feasts and holidays. And sometimes... The holiday traditions can get disconnected from the purpose of the holiday. Sometimes Thanksgiving becomes just about engorging yourself (laughs) rather than a time to thank God for the way in which in his providence brought settlers to America and the founding of this country and all that goes with it. This became apparent several years ago, perhaps you remember, in July of 2020. 
It was after several months of public health announcements, gubernatorial addresses daily, that we were told that we were to celebrate our freedoms on the 4th of July, but just don't leave the house. Just don't gather with too many people. And there seemed to be a strange disconnect between celebrating the freedoms, for instance, that are given to us in the Bill of Rights, the right to assemble, but just not too much. Sometimes it happens as well on birthday celebrations and whatnot and things like that, that you forget whose birthday is it? Who, Who are we celebrating today? Well, the same can happen as well with the feast that Jesus has given us, namely the feast of the Lord's Supper, sometimes called the communion table, that we, there can be this disconnect between what we're doing and why we're doing it, what we're remembering. And so I, I want us to spend some time thinking about it from the Gospel of Luke and thinking about it, particular in its connection with the Passover. It picks up in verse 7. It says, Jesus came, I'm sorry, then came the first day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. Notice the close connection between the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, Lord willing, uh, in the upcoming weeks, we'll study the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Uh, But for our purposes, notice how by the time of the first century, which was a millennium after Moses had given those instructions in Leviticus chapter 23, there was almost a kind of conflation of the Feast of Unleavened Bread uh, and the Passover, which makes sense because part of the, the Passover ceremony, uh, there was a requirement to only eat, le- only eat bread that was unleavened, that didn't have the yeast in it. And this also kicked off the seven-week Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so here, we're told that this was the time of the year. This was what was going on. It's much like, uh, no doubt, like uh, when Christmas time comes around, you know, people start listening to Christmas music. Uh, People start decorating. There's all kinds of anticipation and excitement in the air. Well, similarly, the Passover was in a very real sense a, a kind of independence day for the Hebrews, for the Israelites. This is when this nation uh, was brought out of Egypt and God had gloriously entered into a covenant relationship with them with what we call the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, or the Mosaic Covenant. And so it was a big deal, and as it is today with, with Jewish people today, the Passover it was very important. And so... It's very clear, in fact, you can even observe as we read through this again, how many times the word Passover is mentioned. It's very clear that Luke wants us to connect what's going on here in Christ and the table and the death and resurrection that's looming on the horizon with the Passover that was given in Leviticus 23 and in Exodus 12, other parts of the Torah. Verse 8. And Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go prepare the Passover for us so that we 
may eat it. And so Peter and John are told to make some reservations, make some preparations. Now what becomes evident is that Jesus has already, in a sense, kind of made some of these preparations and reservations. They just need to seal the deal on these reservations. And so in verse 10 it says, And he said to them, Behold, after you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters. So there's specific instructions. You're to go into the city, and here is is no doubt the city of of Jerusalem, and they're going to encounter a man carrying water, a pitcher of water. Now, keep in mind, this is Passover, okay? And very conservative estimates are that there was roughly half a million people in the city of Jerusalem at this time. People would come from all over. It was one of the three pilgrimage feasts that God had given through Moses, which, which meant, you know, many families would travel into Jerusalem, whether you were from Israel or even whether you were from other parts of the world. And so there's half a million people in this small area. And uh, also keep in mind the infants, infrastructure of the ancient world they didn't have, uh, you know, all these different roads in which people could travel on. And there was probably just a handful of small dirt roads in which people traveled. And so these dirt roads would have been packed with people. And so Jesus tells Peter and John, there's going to be somebody, a man carrying a pitcher of water. That's like finding a needle in a haystack, you would think. Except for the fact that in the ancient world, men did not carry water. In fact, almost, as far as I can tell, almost every instance of events at wells in the Bible, it's, it's usually women who are there, right? In fact, you know, Pastor Josh is teaching what he must be. That, that might be a method in which for some of you to find a spouse, just go to your local well. It's It's biblical. And so they're to look for a man carrying a pitcher of water, which would have been a strange occurrence, and they're to follow him, and he's going to take them, verse 11, you shall say to the owner of the house, he's going to take them to a house, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large furnished upper room, prepare it there. And so, here's these instructions to say to the owner of the house, which the man with the water is going to lead you to, say to him, where is the upper guest room? Now, often homes in the ancient world would would have an upper room to them, and sometimes this was initially almost like a porch in which people would sit out on in the evenings and there was usually a, a, a stairway that led up the side of the house. And in, in the evenings, when it was cooler, people would sit on their um, patios, on their roofs. This is, you know, again, why Jesus, we see one of his miracles. He, he you know, the, the, the friends break through the roof uh, and they drop their friend uh, in front of Jesus. That, that's how. Well, Sometimes you would then make an addition onto the house, even as some of you maybe have done. You know, you have a porch that you convert into a back room. 
well, this porch on top of the roof, sometimes people would build then a second level, and this would become a kind of a guest room, a kind of a banquet room. And so Jesus has evidently already made preparations here, and he's telling Peter and John to secure these reservations and to make preparations so that he can eat the Passover with his disciples. Now, some of the preparations involved, obviously, would have been the lamb, having the lamb, and uh, the roasting of the lamb, and all that was required of that. Some of it included the unleavened bread. Uh, We're going to talk about this in a minute, but there was kind of three pieces of unleavened bread. They were called matzahs. And there was also the bitter herbs in which you would dip the bread into. And all of this had special symbolic meaning. Verse 13. And when they left and found everything just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. So, Peter and John doing preparations here. And so then, finally the hour comes, verse 14. And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So they're all there then at the upper room, which, which, by the way, this may, there's fairly good evidence that this might have been uh, John Mark's mother's house. It's, It's probably the upper room that we also see in the book of Acts. Uh, and, and we've talked a little bit when we were in John chapter 13 about how, uh, you know, the, the um, artistry that came out of the medieval period of the Last Supper of them all sitting uh, at chairs at the table would not have been how it actually was because the table would have been a very low-lying table. There may have been several tables in which they would have been lying uh, on their left side around the table with their heads closest to the table, hence why it says when, when uh, Jesus was reclined, verse 14, he's reclined at the table, he's lying down at the table. And it's at this point in which he's there with the apostles, here they're called apostles, and some of the gospels they're called disciples, he says to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So here Luke in a very real sense, unveils the heart of Jesus. As he records Jesus' words, that Jesus wanted to feast with them. He wanted to eat with them before something happened that he knows is going to happen. He's going to suffer. This is the suffering of Jesus, the crucifixion that is on the horizon the next morning is not something that would catch Jesus off guard. It was something he knew about, that he anticipated, that he awaited for. And dare I say, he came for such a purpose. Verse 16. For I say to you, I shall never again eat, I shall never again eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus says that there will not be this kind of feasting with you until we do it 
at the end of the age. And so he looks with anticipation to eat with them because it's not going to happen again until later. And this this is alluded to uh, at other points in the Gospel of Luke. Listen to Luke chapter 13, verse 28. It says, In that place, Jesus says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being cast out. And they will come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. Sometimes it's asked, is there going to be food in heaven? There's your verse, okay? There most certainly will be food in the age to come. It's also later on in this same section in Luke 22 and verse 30. Jesus says that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so Jesus says, I'm I'm looking forward to this. I'm delighted to eat with you because we're not going to eat like this until the age to come. Verse 17, and when, he had ta- and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. So he says something similar about the eating. There's also not going to be any drinking in this same kind of way. And notice this is after he has passed out this cup. Now, don't confuse this cup with the cup that comes later on. And it's probably helpful to note that there were four cups at the Passover Seder, just as there are four cups at a Passover Seder today. Now, sometimes when you hear the word Seder, it just means order, that this was the order of the the Passover meal. There was a certain tradition, and by the way, it's, it's very interesting. In Jewish tradition, there's, there's something called the Haggadah, which means to tell or to declare. And, and basically, it's a book about the kind of order of service in the Passover meal. And it's a tradition that dates back several centuries before the time of Christ, and is essentially practiced in the same kind of way today amongst Jewish people. And so it's a very long-standing tradition, and this is wonderful because it, it helps us, it gives us a window into what this last Passover might have been like with Jesus. That there was, as I mentioned, here the first of four cups. Now, also what's interesting is there, there may be a very real sense of which, because Jesus says that he's not going to drink again until the kingdom of God, that at this Passover, Jesus only passed around three cups, two of which are recorded here in the Gospel of Luke. The first of these cups was called the, or is called and was called the Kadush. It was accompanied by a prayer of sanctification. Now, the the Hebrew word kadosh means holy or set apart. So this is a prayer to consecrate this meal, to consecrate this time. 
And with this cup being passed around, which again is not to be confused with the cup that he says later on is the new covenant in his blood, this first cup was also accompanied by a prayer. The prayer might have been something like this, because again, this is very old Jewish tradition. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who created the fruit of the vine. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, who has chosen us for the service from among the nations. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has kept us in life, who has preserved us, and who has enabled us to reach this season. After this passing of the cup and the prayer, there would have been a ceremonial washing of the hands where there would have been a, a kind of a pitcher that would have been brought out to each of the persons present and there would have been a washing of the hands to highlight again the, the sanctity of this moment and this participation in this feast. It's probably at this point although we do not know for certain, but it's probably at this point in the order of the Seder in which Jesus went around the table according to John chapter 13 and washed the feet of the disciples with a towel around his waist. After the ceremonial hand washing, there was what's called the karpas, also the green vegetable. Now for some of you I know... You're not going to like this part of the meal. You just want the lamb. You just want the meat. But you've got to eat your vegetables first. And so the green vegetable would be dipped into salt and water and eaten. The green vegetable was a reminder that the Passover occurred during the springtime. But also the salt water was a reminder of the tears that were shed in Egypt. The tears, remember, as, as the, the Hebrews were under the burden of that slavery, the oppression of Pharaoh and the Egyptians tossing their baby boys into the Nile River, placing unrealistic demands of forced labor upon them. And they crying, they're crying out to the Lord. And so this would have been a reminder And then came the middle matzah ceremony. At the Passover Seder, as it is today, there was three pieces of unleavened bread. Three pieces of unleavened bread. And the middle piece was broken in half. And it was wrapped in a napkin... And somebody would go and hide that middle matzah. And again, this is a tradition that dates back thousands of years before even the time of Christ. This matzah then, it would be almost like something akin to our, uh, a kind of an Easter egg hunt later on in the service. The children were to go and find the hidden matzah. And it would reappear. And we'll talk about that later. But also at this point, after the hiding of the middle matzah, 
four questions would be asked. There would be one child, usually the youngest of the children. He was to memorize a certain part in the ceremony. Now, obviously, we don't know were there any children there when Jesus and his apostles were, were there. We don't know. Maybe, you know, John, who was the youngest, evidently, of the disciples, maybe that was his job. We don't know. Four questions a child was called upon to recite, and they would recite them diligently. Why is this night different from all other nights? All, on all other nights, we eat leavened or unleavened bread, but on this night, only unleavened. On all other nights, we eat all kinds of herbs, but on this night, only bitter herbs. On all other nights, we do not dip even once. But on this night we dip twice. On all other nights we eat, either sitting or reclining. But on this night we eat reclining. And this was part of the instruction that was to pass from parents to children, explaining to them the significance of this meal. And then after that recitation, the second cup was passed. It was poured in response to those four questions. And at this point, there would be a retelling of the the Passover story and how God delivered the Hebrews out of Egypt in the midst of the plagues. And there was a reminder of the sweetness of God's redemption in the midst of their bitter slavery. And then after this, the dinner roasted lamb served with the bitter herbs and the matzah, the unleavened bread, would be eaten. But then there's the second matzah that I mentioned earlier. After the meal was eaten, children would be sent to go find the second middle matzah. A child would find this And the matzah that was wrapped in the napkin would be opened up and then a small piece would be broken and each person at the table would participate in this small piece of unleavened bread. This piece, this hidden matzah is called a fikomen, which as far as I know, is the only Greek word that's found in all the, the Hebrew tradition of the Seder and the Haggadah. It's the only Greek word which translated means he came, which I find utterly fascinating. Three matzahs, the one in the middle, is wrapped, hidden, reappears, and it's called he came. And again, this is not in the Bible. The three matzahs are not in the Bible, but it is a Jewish tradition that predates Christ. Verse 19 of Luke chapter 22. Perhaps it was this middle matzah that Jesus grabbed and says, and he had When he had taken some of the bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus breaks the bread. And and, and again, this is 
this is such tremendous significance here because the, the, you know, the, the elements of the Passover meal up until this point, all of it had pointed backwards to what was accomplished in God redeeming his people out of Egypt. And so now Jesus is, is, is basically giving new meaning here. New meaning that points forward to what is going to happen on the very next day on the new Exodus. Which, by the way, Luke is the only one, the only author that records, the only author of the Gospels that records this conversation between Elijah and Moses and Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. And it says that they're talking about his coming departure, which is the Greek word, his coming Exodus. So it's very clear that Jesus is highlighting that his death, burial, and resurrection is the new exodus. And this is a new Passover that he is instituting here under a, what we're going to see in a minute here, a new covenant. And Jesus gives specific instructions. This is my body, that this this. Bread, this unleavened bread represents his body. And this is to be done now not merely in remembrance of the first Passover, but the coming new Passover, the coming new Exodus. I'm sorry, not the, the old Exodus, but the new Exodus. It's a meal. Again, like if Jesus is not God in the flesh, the champion, this is all blasphemous, right? To say this is a new Passover and you're to do this not in remembrance of Moses, not in remembrance of what Yahweh did back then, but now in remembrance of me. Verse 20, in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. This now would have been the third cup, it would appear, that was passed out. And by the way, this cup was called the cup of redemption. How fitting. This cup of redemption is passed out. But again, Jesus puts new meaning on this cup. And he says, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. That now this cup represents the shed blood of Jesus that he was going to pour out on behalf of many the very next day upon the cross. And not only that, this was instituting, this was inaugurating a new covenant. And that, by the way, is the first point I want you to take home this morning is to remember Jesus inaugurated the new covenant. This is what's going on here. This is something new that Jesus is doing. All the the, the Passover, the Old Testament were pictures that were fulfilled in Christ. Remember Jesus inaugurated the new covenant. Now, if you've been with us maybe only for the past, I don't know, five or six months, you might think we're Jewish. 
We've been in Leviticus for a while. There's lots of strange Jewish laws, all kinds of dietary laws, all kinds of clean, unclean stuff, priesthood, sacrifice, blood. Or you might think we're Seventh-day Adventists, but we're not, okay? We are Christians here, but we do believe that there is a new covenant. That, this is, that's why, one of the reasons why those rites and ceremonies and the feast, dare I say, are, are not things that, that, that we observe today, that they find their fulfillment in Christ because we are new covenant Christians. But, but, but we study Leviticus because we understand that these are pictures and shadows and types that find their fulfillment in Christ. In, in that the old covenant is foundational to understanding the new covenant. That we can't rightly and properly understand the new covenant unless we understand the old covenant. And to be sure, there is tremendous continuity between the covenants. There's many moral principles that we've found. You can find both in the Old Testament and New Testament. But Jesus says, and this is very important here, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's new, which means there's some things that are different. And we want to be careful that we don't move back under the old, but that we stay under the new. If you read the book of Hebrews, it's very much all about that, right? The author of Hebrews is regularly warning those Hebrew Christians, don't go back. Why? We have a better priest. We have a better sacrifice. We have a better covenant. Don't go back to the old covenant. Don't go back to Judaism. Don't deny Christ and go back to those old things which are pictures and symbols because the reality is here and is found in Christ. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10 and following. The author of Hebrews, he's citing Jeremiah chapter 31, which is a prophecy related to the new covenant. Hebrews 8, 10 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with, their, with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and upon their hearts. I will write them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, Know the Lord. For all will know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful, for I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. When he said a new covenant He has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and is growing old is ready to disappear. The author of Hebrews here is highlighting that, again, we, with the coming of Christ, is the new covenant. Part of this new covenant is the promise that all in the new covenant would know him from the least of them to the greatest of them. That the promise of the new covenant is God would forgive their sins and remember their iniquity no more. 
And also with this, the author of Hebrews labors to point out that with this new covenant is a new priesthood, namely the priesthood of Christ. This, by the way, is why I don't call myself a priest. Because Christ is the priest. He is the high priest of the new covenant. And he says, whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And so we need to understand to remember that Jesus inaugurated the new covenant. He inaugurates, as so many covenants in the Bible, they are inaugurated through blood. In fact, one of the things I love about the Legacy Standard Bible translation is that the the Old Testament Hebrew word that is often in English translations translated made a covenant, made a covenant, made a covenant, they get it right by translating it cut a covenant because that's what the Hebrew word kathar means. It means to cut. They would cut a covenant and they would cut, how would they cut a covenant? Not by cutting paper, by cutting an animal. Covenants were instituted with blood. And so it is with the new covenant. The covenant the new covenant was instituted with blood. And so it would make sense that as the old covenant was inaugurated with the Passover with blood and a celebratory meal as a reminder so that the new covenant would be given a meal. A meal to remember. A meal to remember, firstly, that Jesus inaugurated the new covenant. But secondly, to remember Jesus is the illustration of the Passover lamb. The, 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 the language here that Jesus gives highlights that, that he is that substitutionary sacrifice. Again, remember, just by way of review from last week, God said that he was going to kill every firstborn son of every household unless, unless there was a substitute, unless there was a sacrifice, unless they observed the Passover in such a way that the lamb was killed, the lamb was picked on the 10th day of Nisan, and then it was slaughtered on the 14th day and then eaten and it had to be consumed. All of it had to be consumed. If it wasn't eaten by the participants, it had to be burned and offered unto Yahweh. And so in a very real sense, that lamb was a substitute. Every household that did that, the son didn't die. The wrath passed over that household. The judgment passed over because it was born upon that lamb. And so it would make sense that when we see Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper as the new feast of the new covenant, that he would say things like we see here in verse 19 of Luke 22. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks... He broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. That that phrase, for you, which is also the same thing we see in verse 20 when he says this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The for, it's it's a unique preposition in the original language 
huper, which carries the idea of in the place of, in the stead of, on behalf of. It carries the idea of substitution. Our English word for is very ambiguous. It's very vague. But this word is very specific. It's used in passages like John chapter 10 and verse 10 where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. In the place of his sheep. In the stead of his sheep. On behalf of his sheep. As a substitute for his sheep. It's used in John 15, I think verse 13, where it says, Greater love has no one than this, that a man lays down his life for his friends. For his friends who pair in the place of his friends, on behalf of his friends, in the stead of his friends, as a substitute for his friends. It's also, we see that the language here even of blood, Right? He broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then verse 20, the cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Well, again, we've spent a lot of time now in Leviticus. We know what blood means. Blood means something died. Something was executed as a kind of substitute on behalf of sinners. And so all of this language here is highlighting that Jesus, in the language of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he is the Paschal, he is the Passover lamb. Or in the language of John the Baptist, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the Passover lamb. And this is what we see, right? All you have to do is fast forward a little bit to Luke 23 and verse 44. And Luke records, it was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured. By the way, when was the last time that happened? In the Bible. Seems to me when God was mocking Ra. The sun god. The, the penultimate plague. Before the firstborn. Was the darkening of the sun. God. Taking a marker. <laughs> and blotting the sun out. And so there was darkness. But here, here's the wonder of wonders. Back then, it was a kind of judgment upon the Egyptians in the rebellion against Yahweh. And so here again at the cross must be a sign of God's judgment. But it's not his judgment upon the Egyptians. It's not even his judgment upon the Israelites. It's his judgment upon the Passover lamb, his own son. It's judgment being poured out upon Jesus, the innocent lamb, not because of his own sins, not because of his own rebellions, not because of his own cosmic treason, but because of ours. He's the substitute. And so in verse 46 of Luke 23, it says, And Jesus cried out, 
with a loud voice saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Oh, my dear friends, the bread and the cup are pictures that the Passover lamb has come. The sacrifice has been made. The blood has been shed. And when Jesus says, this is my blood, obviously he doesn't mean it in a very wooden, literalistic way. He's not saying that the blood, that the cup becomes his actual blood with plasma and hemoglobin and as disgusting as that may sound. But it's a picture. It's a metaphor. It's a metaphor of the reality of what he did and what he accomplished on your behalf as he bore the wrath of God so that you can stand before him forgiven, accepted, part of his family. Friend, this should highlight that the communion table should be a table of joy. A table of gladness. A table where we remember that we've been forgiven, that somebody has paid the price for our sin. Friend, do you know something of that joy and thankfulness? Do you realize the weight of your guilt before Almighty God, the judgment that you deserve? And the reality that God himself has made a way for you to be forgiven and for him to be perfectly just and to not compromise his integrity because he did it by punishing his own son so that all the punishment of hell that you and I deserve for all eternity, forever and ever, world without end, was poured out upon the back of Jesus. So that we, with all of our sin, can stand before God with the certainty that we can enter into eternity forgiven because of Jesus. Friends, we of all people, as gospel people, should be most thankful. In fact, that's one of the names for the communion table that I know some of you may be allergic to it because of its description in some church traditions, but Eucharist. Eucharisteo just means to give thanks. In fact, isn't that what Jesus said? It says that he gave thanks, verse 19, having taken some bread, gave thanks and broke it. Giving thanks. And certainly now on this side of the cross, as we do this in remembrance of what Jesus has done, we should be a thankful people. Three times a month, Jermaine Washington and Michelle Stevens get together for what they call a gratitude lunch. With good reason, Washington donated a kidney to Stevens whom he described as just a friend they met together at work they used to have lunch together 
And one day, Michelle wept as she spoke about waiting on a kidney donor list for 11 months. She was being sustained by kidney dialysis, but suffered fatigue and blackouts and was plagued by joint pain. And because Washington couldn't stand the thought of watching his friend die, he decided to see if he was a match to be a kidney donor. And sure enough, he was a match. And he donated his kidney to his friend. And three times a month, got together for lunch, a gratitude lunch. There's a sense in which the communion table is a gratitude lunch. It's a time to give thanks. The Paschal Lamb has been sacrificed. The wrath has passed over. But friend, if you've not yet embraced the Lord Jesus, do so. Don't delay. The severity of God's justice that bore down upon His own Son, will it not bear down upon you if you reject Him as that sacrifice? If you try to stand before God upon your own merits and your own goodness, hoping that God will wink at your rebellions? No, friend. Trust in Jesus, the Passover lamb. But also as God's people who have embraced his sacrifice, be a thankful people. I understand sometimes Things don't go as you want them to. There's disappointments. There's heartache in life. There's, we live in a world of suffering. There's much sorrow. But whatever suffering we endure in this life is better than what we, we, what we do deserve in the life to come. And we have the promise of a forever paradise, not because of our own goodness, but because Jesus was our Passover lamb. So be a thankful people. But now thirdly, lastly, remember not only that Jesus is the one who inaugurated the new covenant, Jesus is the illustration of the Passover lamb, but also Jesus' intense inclination to feast with you. I love this. Did you notice that in verse 14? And when the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I mean, that's, that's shocking, right? Jesus says, I've been looking forward to this meal. And by that, I don't think he meant, you know, Peter, he can really roast a good lamb. You know, just the way he squeezes it, it's just perfect. No, no, no. Maybe, maybe Peter did, but he was looking forward to spending the time with them. He was looking forward to being with them. He wanted to eat that Passover, which became the last Passover, the first Lord's Supper, To eat it with them. 
Now, of course, this is quite specific for the disciples. But, I mean, just let's think about this for a minute. Who are we talking about here? In fact, just after the meal in verse 24 of of Luke 22 and following, there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Does it sound like your table at home? Bicker, bicker, bicker between the kids. Fighting, bickering, pulling for position. I mean, this is who Jesus was dealing with here. And not only that, you know who else was present at the table? Judas. One of them who would sell Jesus to the religious leaders for 30 pieces of silver. Also, one would deny he even knew Jesus. Peter, right? And all of them in some way, shape, or form, when Jesus gets arrested, they're booking it. They're running away. Abandoning Jesus. And yet Jesus says, I've earnestly desired. In fact, it's, 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 it's very intense in the original. There's an earnest desire. That's why the English translates it that way. He desired with a desire to eat with them. Friends, <laughs> this is fascinating here. You know, this past week, it's kind of a funny story. I... I have too many books, okay? And sometimes I collect all these books and, and I forget what books I have. That's one advantage of digital books is you could search them. And so this past week, I knew I have some book in my Kindle library that's about the feasts and the gospel of Luke. And I found it. And so I'm rummaging through this, looking, looking thinking that it's gonna cover some of the feasts maybe that are celebrated in the Gospel of Luke and in Acts, by the way, as well. And, and it's not about those, the, like the Passover feast, Feast of Unleavened Bread. I thought, well, this is very disappointing. But I looked at it a little bit closer and realized he's tracing out a theme in the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts when people repent that, that Jesus delights to feast with sinners. It occurs over and over in the book of Acts, in the gospel of Luke. And for instance, early on in the gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 5 and verse 27 and following, remember Jesus, he's going to the, by the tax booth and he tells Levi, come follow me. And Levi abandons his tax collecting operation and begins to follow Jesus. We also know Levi as Matthew. And you remember the first thing that Matthew did? He threw a feast. He had a party. And Jesus was invited. He wanted to introduce Jesus to all of his fellow tax collecting friends. Fast forward to Luke chapter 7. Jesus is at another meal. And he's invited by Simon the Pharisee to this meal. And do you remember that awkward moment where there's an uninvited guest 
to the meal. She's described as a sinful woman who's just blubbering all over the place, making everybody feel awkward. And then she gets down on her knees and she's sobbing and she's cleaning Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears and then she's breaking expensive perfume all over Jesus. And the response of the religious elite is, if Jesus knew what kind of woman she is, he wouldn't be letting her touch her. She's at a feast. Jesus likes to eat with sinners at feasts. Luke chapter 14, Jesus gives a parable. A man was giving a big dinner and he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is ready now. But they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of lamb and I need to go out and look at it. I ask you, consider me excused. Another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to try them out. I ask you, consider me excused. Another one said, I have, a, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And when the slave came back, he reported these things to his master. And then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go at once, go out to the streets, to the lanes, to the city, and bring in here the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done. Still there is room. And the master said to the slave, You go out to the highways and along the fences and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my dinner. And so Jesus in this parable is again liking, likening the, the invitation, the gospel invitation to a feast. Come, come, inviting. Come sinners, eat with the king. And then you remember Luke 15, the famous Luke 15 where we have the parable, the prodigal son, but it doesn't start with that parable, it starts in Luke 15, 2, when both the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, this man receives sinners, and he even eats with them. And the climactic parable that Jesus gives is about a son who basically tells his dad, I wish you were dead, just give me the family inheritance, and I'll be on my way, I'll be out of your hair. And he goes and spends all the family inheritance, and he's eating food, sharing it with the pigs, and he comes to his senses, and he realizes he's not worthy even to be called a son to his father. He's going to go back to him and see if he'll just take him as a slave. Do you remember the response of the father? He doesn't shame him. He doesn't ostracize him. He sees his son coming off in the distance and he was waiting for him. The porch light had been left on every night waiting for his son to come back. And when he sees him off in the horizon, orders are given. Bring out the best robe, put it on my son. Bring out a ring and put it on his finger. And by the way, go slaughter the fattened calf, which was reserved for the greatest feast of the year. Slaughter the fattened calf. Why? My son was lost and now is found. What is that? A picture, but... 
Yahweh, Almighty God, loves to eat with sinners. Those who realize their sin and come to Him humbled to receive forgiveness. One more. Luke 19. Jesus is passing through Jericho. And there's a man who's a tax collector, not just any tax collector. He's a great, he's a cheap tax collector. He's a short fella. Never was picked for any basketball teams growing up in junior high and high school. About spud web size. So he's got to see Jesus. So he climbs up a tree. And him and Jesus lock eyes as he's walking by. And Jesus knows his name. Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to eat at your house today. Jesus loves to eat with sinners. And by the way, that book, it didn't mention Luke 22. But I thought, well, doesn't that just fit in perfectly? Jesus, intense inclination, his desire to feast with sinners. Not any sinner, but sinners who realize their sin and need for forgiveness and come with a humble heart that trusts. Friends, this is Jesus. And so... The Lord's table is a table where we can be thankful. It's a table where sinners are welcome. Sinners who trust in Jesus as their only hope. And he loves to meet with sinners at the table. Yes, not bodily, not physically. He's bodily at the right hand of the Father. But in a spiritual sense, he communes with his people by faith. It's no accident that he tells the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 23 and verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and will dine with him and he with me. That church needed to come back to Jesus repentant and humbled. And Jesus said, I'm at the door, I'm knocking, open up, and let's have dinner. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you delight to feast with sinners. We're not worthy to sit at the table. We have no right to be there. Oh, Lord, you know it all. You see it all, Lord. Oh, if our evil thoughts and deeds were to be plastered over the internet, we would want to dig a hole and bury ourselves in it. But, Lord, you know it all and you see it all. And yet, Lord, you take that pile of mess and sin and lay it upon your back and you forgive us of it all through the blood of the cross. And you call us to remember, to remember what you've done, to remember 
through the bread and through the cup. So, Lord, help us even now to remember. In Jesus' name, amen.